Well, good morning again and welcome to you. I have a few announcements for you as we get going this morning. Maybe on your way in the door you saw that pile of stuff in the corner. Um, yeah, woo, we're not hoarders. We didn't just leave a mess out there. Um, but we have some really cool work that we get to do in partnership with two groups in our community that are helping to fight homelessness. Vision House is a residential assisted living place where they take people from the streets, bring them in, they wrap them around in intense support so that at the end of about three to five years that they're living there, they are on a completely different trajectory and the work that they do is really a beautiful thing and so we get to come alongside of them as well as a place called the Nourishing Network and we live here in the Edmonds School District and the Nourishing Network is kind of the relief arm of the school district and it identifies families that are food insecure and it helps get them food over the weekends because for some of those kids when they come in for their free and reduced um, breakfast and lunch the last time that they eat sometimes is Friday, their lunchtime. And they don't know what food looks like through the weekend. And so the Nourishing Network, just um, like in a very dignified way, gets these kids food in their backpacks that they can kind of eat throughout the weekend, that they can prepare themselves. Um, and then in addition to that, we have a once a month food pantry where we take one of the schools that has a lot of lower income families, um, kids that have been identified as being food unstable, and we invite those parents to come in for a drive-through pantry. And we just kind of load up their car with groceries and toilet paper and shampoo and some of those types of things. And um, one of the coolest things that we get to do that they don't often have is provide some fresh produce for them. Because a lot of the stuff that gets donated is like a cup of noodles, top ramen, easy mac and cheese. And so it's so cool to be able to bring apples and bananas and onions for cooking and carrots and potatoes. And so that's what you saw in the lobby. And um, if any of you would be interested in helping us, we do this once a month. We just kind of pack the lobby and then we send it out on Tuesdays and we distribute it to those two groups. So you can do that by texting um, the word Cedar Way or Vision House. Vision? Is it Vision? Yeah, thanks. I was going to turn around, but I thought I could just ask you guys. You're like a wealth of re a great resource for me. Um, you text it to that number, and it'll kind of send you a link to a digital sign-up that says, what do we still need? Who's already bringing something? And then um, it happens this Tuesday, actually. And so um, if you do want to donate something, we would be so grateful for that. And what you do is you just kind of drop it off outside of this door here. We have some storage bins, and you pop it inside of that and throughout the week we just haul that stuff in until Tuesday morning when we go to the elementary school and then we also also drop off at Vision House so items for both of those groups are there um, so and I just want to thank you for the way that you guys have just poured yourself into the community and providing for them in that way we have never gone to those pantries without the things that we've said you can count on us to bring those and we really have you to thank for that so thank you and thank you to those of you that are watching from home I know many of you who aren't able to come to church in person are so so like awesome about just bringing stuff every month to that so thank you 
Um, I also wanted to tell you about next Sunday. We are getting really excited. We get to celebrate something together called Love Lived Here. Um, uh, Three years ago, which seems like yesterday and forever, (laughs) do you hear me? Um, We kind of had a big like drive to try and figure out, okay, can we purchase this building? What kind of ministry can we do? Could we renovate it? And so some of you made pledges to financially support that. And next Sunday is our celebration of that because it was three years long and we have come to the end of that. And it doesn't feel right to just let that pass us by. We want to just go, God, Thank you for your goodness to us, for the way that you've been faithful through people donating, people showing up. But I want to let you know that is not an insider event. Like, oh, well, I wasn't here three years ago. That wouldn't really be for it. It is for you. Um, it is, if you come, you will get the, the way that our heart beats around here and what we care about, and we want you to know that. And so if you wonder, I don't know if I really like this church, if you don't like it after next Sunday, leave. (laughs) Never come back. We don't want you here. (laughs) Love lived, baby. (laughs) So please come back. Please come and celebrate that with us. And how do I segue now? Okay, well, we love to hear from you. Um, not in person. Don't give me any of your feedback to my face. Go ahead and go to brookviewchurch.com, and we have a digital connect card, and we would love for you to fill that out. Um, there's ways that you can figure out how to be involved if you want to, if you want to meet with a pastor, someone to pray for you. You want to give comments of any kind. I can take negative criticism. I can, but I'm not going to open it till Tuesday. So there's that. Jason and I take Mondays off. We don't touch our emails. We don't touch any of that. So you text me, I'm a ghost. I might see it, I might not. But okay, enough about me. (laughs) Fill out your digital connect card and I will transition us into the message as well. Um, There are so many different stories in the Bible about Easter. And today we're going to be taking a look, or Jason's going to talk to us about a specific story of two disciples and their encounter with Jesus three days after his death on the cross. And so I'm going to read the passage for you. The story is found in Luke 24, 13 through 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. 
In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. If that was not clear, if you're visiting and that was, it's not clear, that is my wife. <laughs> you're like, oh, that looked nice. It's Easter. Come on, pastor. <laughs> well, you guys, uh, today we're, we're going to look at this resurrection story from Luke. The story of these two disciples walking along the road that Jen just read. Um, and there, as she said, there's a lot of different resurrection like, stories in the Gospels, but today we're going to dive deeply into this specific one. Now, I, I, I love this story. I love it because I think that we can see ourselves in it in certain ways. But before we get into that, I want to give us just a little bit of a framework, like a lens to look through to help us appreciate what's happening in this story. And to do that, I want to show you guys a picture Are we having trouble? There we go. This is a picture that I'm guessing most of you have seen before. Um, it was originally an oil painting, and it is one of the most famous paintings of Jesus in history. Um, how many of you guys have seen this image before? Yeah, most, most of you. It was painted in 1941 by Warner Salmon in Chicago. And you guys, this is the most mass-produced image of Jesus in human history. There have been over 500 million prints of this painting, if you like include calendars and lampshades and magnets and stuff like that. <laughs> because who doesn't need a Jesus magnet? <laughs> because this is, this is one of the most common uh, images of Jesus in the world. And again, it was painted in 1941, so, you know, relative to all of Christian history, it's, it's not that old. 
I mean, there has been an awful lot of Christian art over the last 2,000 years, right? And so this is a fairly recent piece of art painted just before World War II. Now, my grandma lived in a nursing home in North Dakota, and she had this painting on her wall in her room. And so as a kid, during visits, I remember just being like captivated by this image. I remember like in the room of my grandma's nursing home, this image just mesmerizing me. I would find myself just staring at it. And I remember feeling like, as a kid, feeling a sense of, of warmth and comfort, and yet there was, there was a certain degree of mystery because Jesus is depicted here as very serene and he's simple and he's gazing off at something. I mean, like, <laughs> right? And he's kind, of, he's kind of mysterious. And so there you go. That's the Head of Christ by Warner Salmon. There are 500 million of these floating around planet Earth somewhere. So it would not be all that weird if when you think of Jesus, this is the primary image that comes to your mind. Now, here's what's interesting. Every image or representation of Jesus has a story behind it, along with a whole series of unexamined assumptions. So if you, if you grew up with this as your primary image, as I did, it, it, may, it may shape how we think of Jesus in more ways than we could, we could even realize. Now, I just want to say there's something obvious about this image. There's something kind of obvious about this image. Anybody? What is it? He's white. Okay. All right. In this image, Jesus is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed man who looks like he's from Norway. Right? And, and, and so this, I think, is probably why my 100% Norwegian grandma loved it. I mean, it looked like her whole family. And, and this Jesus is, is kind-looking and handsome and beautiful, and he has impeccable hair. Does he not have impeccable hair? Man. So the obvious question, though, is, does this look anything like the real Jesus? So in 2002, there was a, a group of, of British New Testament scholars, and they teamed up with a group of forensic scientists, and they got access to skeletons and skulls found in tombs in and around Jerusalem dating to the time of Jesus. And they did these 3D scans and analysis of the skulls to determine what did Jewish men look like during the time of Jesus. And then they let the forensic scientists go to work. Now, you guys, forensic science is crazy these days, right? Some of you watch CSI, you know all about it. <laughs> so, like, they can find a, a corpse in a river that's, like, all decayed and everything, and then they need to piece together, like, who was this person? And they can, from the decayed corpse, like, kind of recreate the image. Like, did you guys know that they can do this? They can. It's pretty cool. So, you, I think you guys can see where I'm, where I'm heading with this right? These New Testament scholars teamed up with forensic scientists to recreate Jesus to give us an image as close as possible to the real Jesus. Anybody want to see what they came up with? Boom. I heard gasps. I heard shocks. I heard giggles. 
To be clear, I, I'm not saying that this is exactly what Jesus looks like, looked like, but the odds are this is a whole lot closer than Warner Salmon's head of Christ. Okay, so it's, it's likely that Jesus was in the mid-five-foot range. The average male skeleton of a Jewish man in the first century was around 5'6", and had coarse black hair and a much larger nose than Warner Solomon's image. Okay, now not with a show of hands or anything, you can keep this real personal, but I just wanna ask you to think, how many of you would eagerly put this picture up in your living room? <laughs> we had one show of hands. Okay, if you're like, uh, no, why not? Like, if, if, if this is more accurate, why not? And I mean, some of you, you're like, I would love to put that up. Where do, I, where do I get that? Awesome. Some of you are like, I don't hang religious art. Am I totally okay? But for some of us, for some of you, there might be something else going on. And it's that we have this image of Jesus hardwired into our mind, and we have a hard time letting that image go. And it's, it's, it's a bit unsettling to think of Jesus differently. And, and there are a lot of people, about 500 million, that prefer a familiar image of Jesus that surely does not represent him over a less familiar image that is certainly closer to the real thing. And that speaks to something, I think, about the human condition, about how we perceive each other, about how we perceive people. We're constantly sizing one another up. We, we, we first, when we first look at somebody, we generate a story about them, right? We, we, we quickly assume all kinds of things about each other. And we, we've all had the experience where you have a, a really strong first impression of someone, but over time, as you get to know the person, you discover they are completely different from what you first thought. But to get beyond the wrong impressions, we have to get to know the person. We have to spend time with them. We have to learn their real story. We have to learn their real personality and not just cling to the one that we made up earlier. Okay, so we have to, we have to spend time. We also need to be humble and, and curious to be able to acknowledge that I actually don't already know who this person is. I, I have to be open to learning new things and I have to want to learn and I have to come to this relationship and come to this interaction with, with openness. So you can spend tons of time with someone, but without humility and curiosity, you just keep them in a box that you created for them. Um, for example, Brooklyn, my 15-year-old daughter. We have family members who, maybe this happens in your family, they refuse to let her grow up. <laughs> Seriously, it's like, I thought you didn't like onions, Brooklyn. And she's like, yeah, I didn't. When I was four, <laughs> right? Even, like, even when we think we know somebody, it's, it's helpful to be kind of humble and to be curious and to keep learning and to keep getting to know somebody. Like if, like, if we stop doing this in marriage, this is when things start to feel really stale. We start to feel... We start to feel distant. So this is valuable in any human relationship and it's essential for growing intimacy, for deeper levels of connectedness. And these images of Jesus, they highlight that we can come to any sort of relationship, come to anything with all kinds of preconceived ideas. That every person and every follower of Jesus, in a sense, comes with preconceptions, like preloaded assumptions about who he is and what he's all about. 
And if we don't allow Jesus to challenge our assumptions, we can remain blind to who he actually is. Okay, so we can be a Christian and we can go to church and we can read the Bible and we can be somebody that does that for years and remain blind to who Jesus actually is. So what this story in Luke and these contrasting images of Jesus, what they do is they invite us to like pause and ask, how can I bring my assumptions about Jesus into the light and let them be shown for what they are? Like, what does it take to actually remove the blinders? Okay, so let's dive into this story more deeply. This is Luke 24. Jesus has been crucified, put in the tomb, and some have gone to visit the tomb and they have found the body missing. And now we can take down the more accurate face of Jesus because I don't want you guys to feel like he's staring at you all service <laughs> long. Jesus is always watching, right? <laughs> okay, so here we go, verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So here are two disciples. And by the way, these are not two of, of any of the famous 12. Um, there was a large, much larger contingent of disciples, people that followed Jesus. And these guys are two of that larger contingent. And they're walking to a village called Emmaus. And what are they talking about on the way? Well, what would you be talking about? Like, you, you, you just left your life behind to follow this rabbi from Nazareth, and you thought he was the Messiah. You thought he was the real deal. You followed Jesus to Jerusalem for Passover, the most important Jewish festival, and he had been teaching, and he'd been doing miracles, and he had become a rock star, and the people welcomed him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and they lined the streets, and they welcomed him like a king, and you thought, this is it. Let's freaking go right? He's been talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. This is it. Let's go. And instead of everything that you thought was coming, he gets arrested by the Jewish leaders, handed over to the Romans, and he is publicly executed through crucifixion. And you watch him die. Okay, this does not fit any of your categories for what is supposed to happen. Now, some of the other disciples at this point are like, hey, the tomb is empty. You know, like, maybe. And these guys, they're like, they're not having any of it. They're like, I'm over this. You know what? They're not staying around to see what happens next. They're done. So they're just heading back to their hometown, to Emmaus, walking away from the whole deal. So can, like, can you feel what they're feeling? Even though Jesus told his disciples many times, many, many times that he was going to die, they just couldn't get it. Why? Because they had way too many preconceived ideas. And so, when they watched him die, it shattered everything. And now, here they are, walking along, processing all of this, all of their disappointment, all their thoughts, all of it. Verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is a huge hinge point in the story. The risen Jesus is walking along with them and they see him and they see that he's a person, they see that he's a, a, a Jewish man, but they don't actually see him. He's walking with them, talking with them, but they are blind to who he really is. And this is such a powerful image because this kind of thing can happen to any of us. You, you can be in the presence of Jesus, but not see who he really is. 
You can go to church, pray, read the Bible, do all this stuff, and yet be in the presence and completely miss who he actually is. In the NIV, it says that they were kept from recognizing him. In more literal translations like ESV, English Standard Version, it reads like this, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So something keeps their eyes from truly recognizing Jesus. They can see that it's a person. They see it's a Jewish man like themselves, but they can't see what's really going on. Why? We have to keep reading. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Now, not only does Jesus know what happened, <laughs> he is what happened, right? But they don't know it. So this is awesome. He's like, huh, what things? Enlighten me. What do you guys mean? Oh, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And here comes their box for Jesus, their preconceived idea. Here comes the image of which they refused to let go. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now let's pause here because they have just, they've just shown their hand. They've just exposed what it is that's blinding them. For them, the crucifixion of Jesus was not a victory. For them, the crucifixion crushed, it crushed everything they hoped for. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, the language in that last statement is ironic because, just out of curiosity, does Jesus think that by dying on the cross, he redeemed Israel? Yes. That's the whole point. The, the thing that they were sure made Jesus a failure is the very thing that in the grand scheme of the gospel, the good news, is exactly the thing that made Jesus the victorious Messiah. But all the confusion hinges on this one word, redemption. Jesus understood that word very differently from these two guys. Now, when you think about how we use that word in our culture these days, how do we, what is redemption? What, is, what does it mean to redeem something? Well, you can, you can go like redeem tickets or coupons or something. Right? So like if you go to Chuck E. Cheese's later today, because nothing says Easter like Chuck E. Cheese. Right, Joe? Yes, sir. And, and so let's say you go there and you play some skee-ball. Joe, I bet you crush skee-ball. I can see you go at Trevor, though. Uh, and, and after every game, the machine, it, it spits out tickets for you, right? And when you get enough, you go redeem them at the counter. And so you, 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 you like trade your tickets in for a, a stuffed bunny for Easter or whatever. Um, so you can redeem something that way. In our culture, the word redemption often means something else. It often refers to a tragedy that turns into something good. Right? Redemption is when a bad thing takes a turn and becomes good. Like that's, that's, or in sports, if one team loses to another team, they redeem themselves by winning the next time they play each other. Right? So in 1995, <laughs> the, the Mariners beat the New York Yankees in the playoffs. 
and they redeemed all those losing games and seasons to, to the Yankees. And, and that was the last real highlight that we have from the Mariners. <laughs> but you, got, you, got, you, get, you get it, okay? Redemption. Something bad becomes good, or a defeat gets turned into a victory. That's our culture. Okay, in the Bible, the word redemption had a very specific meaning. Now, the first appearance of the word in the Bible is in the book of Exodus. So the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, and God says to Moses, I have heard the groans of my people Israel under the slavery of the Egyptians. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. So this is the first time the word redemption appears in the Bible. It's in a story about the liberation of slaves from oppression. It's like God purchases them from slavery to become his own people, his own free people. That's what redemption means in the Bible. Okay, so think back to the story of Exodus from Egypt, Moses goes to Pharaoh who refuses to release the Israelites, and then there's the 10 plagues, and then there's a parting of the Red Sea, and God redeems the people of Israel from Egyptian oppression. That's the independent story of the Jewish people. Like, this is a big deal. It, like, like there's, this, is, this is the story. It's oppression, it's Moses, it's Pharaoh, it's God's power in miraculous ways, it's the 10 plagues, the parting of the sea, freedom. So when these two Jewish men have their hopes set on Jesus as the Messiah, this anointed person sent by God to redeem Israel, what does that look like to them? Well, in the days of Jesus, of course, the oppressor isn't the Egyptians, it's who? The Romans. So it's not Pharaoh, it's, it's Caesar Augustus. So for these two men, the story is, is clear. I'm like, they couldn't see it any clearer. It's it's when the Messiah comes, he will redeem Israel, which will look a whole lot like the Exodus story with Moses, except this time he will redeem Israel from the Romans. And the new Moses is Jesus. So these guys head into Jerusalem, and they're going in, by the way, for what was the event going on that weekend? Passover weekend, man. So the story of Passover is the annual remembrance of the Exodus story for the Jewish people. I mean, what better time for the Messiah to get this party started? So I think we need to sympathize with these two just a little bit. I mean, like, put yourself in their shoes. You've grown up under Roman oppression. Jesus comes around saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Miracles are exploding everywhere, a lot like the days of Moses that you had read about your whole childhood. And the nation is becoming obsessed with this rabbi named Jesus. So you travel with him to Jerusalem for Passover weekend where the streets are lined with crowds, welcoming him with shouts. And then over the weekend, he gets crucified. How are you feeling? Now, there's one more piece of irony to this, to this story. These two guys are walking away from Jerusalem toward Emmaus. We're told they're going to Emmaus. And I know most of you are like, oh, Emmaus, that, that is a big deal. <laughs> so that, that reference means nothing for us, right? I mean, but, but for first century Jewish people, it had all kinds of meaning. 
So well, let me frame it this way. If I, if I told you that Jen and I uh, took a vacation to Hawaii, how does that sound, my love? You're in. I, by the way, have never been to Hawaii, but if, if anyone want, would like to sponsor me. <laughs> uh, so, so imagine we, we go on a vacation. That was terrible. I take that back. Can we strike that from the recording? Uh, okay, so we go to Hawaii, and, and you're like, how was the vacation? And you're like, it was awesome. We did the beach thing. We did the snorkel thing. We did, like, we did all the thing things. And then, but here was the big thing. We visited Pearl Harbor. Right? You immediately know what happened at Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor is a huge, hugely significant location because of the events that took place there. Okay, well, the village of Emmaus would evoke similar memories for Jews. Because about 150 years earlier, Israel was facing a different empire, the Syrians, and a Jewish leader named uh, Judas Maccabees led an uprising, and the enemy army was led by a general named Gorgas. So this story is just, it's another Jewish tale of redemption. It's what redemption looks like. It's the Battle of Emmaus. And this story is recorded in ancient Jewish literature called the Book of Maccabees. Okay, so here's the story. Uh, here's the summary of the story. It says, now, now Gorgas took 5,000 infantry and 1,000 picked cavalry, and this division moved out by night to fall upon the camp of the Jews and attack them suddenly. But Judas heard of it, and he and his warriors moved out to attack the king's force in Emmaus. At daybreak, Judas appeared in the plain with 3,000 men, but they did not have armor or, and swords such as they desired. Okay, now the opposing group has about 6,000. They have 3,000, and they don't even have, really have good swords. And they saw the camp of the Gentiles, which for Jewish people just means anybody who isn't Jewish, right? If for, for the Jewish people, Jewish is us, and Gentiles is them. So they saw the camp of the Gentiles, strong and fortified, with cavalry all around it, and these men were trained in war, unlike our guys. But Judas said to those who were there with him, and here comes this pre-battle, brave heart kind of speech. Do not fear their numbers or be afraid when they charge. Remember how our ancestors were saved at the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his forces pursued them. And now let us cry to heaven to see whether he will favor us and remember his covenant with our ancestors and crush this army who is before us today. Then all the Gentiles, all of them, will know that there is one who redeems and saves Israel. So you have two first century men who were raised on these stories, right? The story of Moses and the Exodus and the story of Judas Maccabees' victory, the, the, the famous battle of Emmaus where a stronger enemy is defeated. These stories are all about redemption. This is what it looks like to them. And then you encounter Jesus of Nazareth, and he's going around saying, the time is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. The true king of this world is, is God. It's not Caesar. And he starts attracting followers by the multitudes, and he gains all this momentum, and he appoints 12 guys to be his main leaders, which feels a whole lot like the 12 tribes of Israel. And it starts to feel like God is starting to do a renewal. He's up to something really huge here. And then he heads with his whole crew to Jerusalem for Passover weekend, and the crowds are singing, and they're hailing him as the Messiah. And you are sure that this is it. He's about to redeem Israel. 
That's the story in your head for how this will all play out. So what are you envisioning? You're probably envisioning something like this. Right? First order of business in Jerusalem is arm the crowds. Second order of business is kill as many Romans as possible. Like first we go in and we, we take a storehouse with all the weapons and then we distribute all those weapons to the mob and we start killing Romans. This is how you redeem a people. But this is when everything falls apart because Jesus has a very different vision. When he talks about redemption, he means something completely different. Now, Jesus was very inspired by the Exodus story as well, and he too believed that a new Exodus moment was coming, but it would not involve him killing anybody. It would involve him being killed. And apparently, the disciples had completely ignored Jesus on this because he talked about this. If you read the Gospels, he talked about this over and over and over again. But these two, like pretty much all of the disciples, could not comprehend what Jesus was actually saying because they had already decided who he was and they had already decided what he was all about. In fact, their predetermined vision of Jesus as the Messiah caused them to ignore all kinds of stuff that Jesus had to say. For instance... One day Jesus stood on a hillside and he said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners, even wicked people do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Now, I realize this teaching of Jesus opens up a million can of worms. Right, are you not just like, yeah, but how about when, but, right? It opens up, I understand, it opens up millions of cans of worms. Here's the thing, I think that's exactly what Jesus intended to do when he said this. I think he meant to open millions of cans of worms because Jesus had a vision for human flourishing, for how we can follow him, for how we can live with God as our ultimate king. And it stands in stark contrast to how most humans have tried to live. Jesus had this idea that, that the way that evil is truly confronted and defeated is through doing good, through self-sacrificial love. And when you think about it, these were not just words for Jesus. He, he's saying, this is how you live under God's reign. This is, this is how you live in his kingdom. This is how you participate, which is exactly what Jesus said he was here to bring, the kingdom. 
And then he goes to Jerusalem and he, and he walks the talk. And it's like Jesus actually believed he would conquer and defeat evil and he would do it by letting evil defeat him. Jesus really believed that he was conquering evil, that he was defeating it. And that's what he was trying to tell the disciples. He told them again and again and again. And then he told them one final time at the Last Supper. I mean, they're eating the, the Passover meal, for heaven's sakes, right? They're eating the Passover meal what, what, so they can remember the Exodus and they can remember Moses. And he takes, Jesus takes the Passover bread and he says, this represents something new now. This is my body broken for you. And then he takes the Passover wine and he says, this, this, this is something new as well. In, in, in me, this wine represents something totally new. This is my blood shed for you. Like, can you see it? Jesus is completely reframing what redemption looks like. And it is as clear as day right there before them, but they can't see it. Why? Because they've already decided who Jesus is and what he's about. So what he's saying to them is going right over their heads because Jesus had a totally upside down vision of reality. I mean, he had all kinds of absurd things to say. Like, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus said so many things that the closest to him just missed. And the story of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it invites us to see ourselves in the story and ask, what preloaded assumptions do I have about Jesus? Is it possible for me to journey alongside Jesus, to follow him even as a disciple, and in many ways not actually see the real Jesus? This, this story shouts to us, yes, okay, that is absolutely possible. In fact, it has been the experience to some degree of every follower of Jesus down, down through the last 2,000 years, since the beginning. Why? Because his vision for life is utterly counterintuitive. And we have to keep coming back to it to understand it and unpack it and get it more and more and more. It doesn't make sense. It does not make sense to us in the world in which we live. So, okay, so how does this whole story resolve? How do they come to see Jesus? Well, their conversation with Jesus continues. Verse 25 says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did the Messiah, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You don't want to be nearby enough to kind of hear what that conversation sounded like. And so when they finish this like on the road Bible study, they still don't recognize him. Okay, so with even more information, they still can't see. Why? Because their value systems, their way of seeing the world does not align with the value system of Jesus. Even though they are with him in person and walking with him and talking with him, they have no clue who he actually is. So Jesus takes them through the Old Testament scriptures, and we want to know, well, well which ones? You know, which ones did he show them and, and, and talk through with them? Uh, you know, it's like, who knows? 
But he's, he's taking them through the story of, of the Bible, and it's a story that begins by saying that all humanity is hopelessly caught in a web. Not just like the heathen Gentiles, not just the bad people, everybody. We're all caught in this kind of never-ending cycle of looking out for the best for me and my tribe, even if it comes at the expense of you and your tribe. And we are all contributors to this in different ways, whether it's Pharaoh or Caesar Augustus or Judas Maccabees or whether it's me and my family versus other families or you and your family versus other tribes. This is all of us. You know what? It's kind of like, you know, we have met the enemy and he is us. So that's the Bible's view of the human condition. But these two disciples hold a different view. Here's how they think. They think like this. God is pro-us, our tribe, Israel, and God is anti-them, our enemy, the Roman Empire, all of the Romans. So Jesus is walking them through scriptures that just obliterate that kind of thinking. Jesus needs to paint a whole new picture of God and reality, a whole new picture of what the kingdom of God is actually like. But it is so counterintuitive to them that they just can't grasp it. So Jesus explains the plan God had from the beginning, that the ultimate way God would confront and defeat evil would be through the suffering death of the Messiah. And this is mind-blowing. God's ultimate purpose was not to destroy his enemy, but to die for his enemy. And that's where this story was always heading. And this means that the death of Jesus is not a tragedy. It's the only way all of humanity can be truly redeemed. Jesus takes all of the selfishness and all of the evil down through human history and he allows it to defeat him so that he can defeat it through the resurrection. Guys, I just want to say, like, if you're here and you're like, I just, I just want to, like, an inspiring word. Something positive. Okay, here it is. This is, this is real life. This is going to be super practical. You ready? Loving your enemies is really bad advice if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It's bad advice because your enemy will take advantage of you and then they will kill you and then you're just dead. And you, you lose. <laughs> so you can take that on out of here and live how you will. Okay, but, but, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then I have to, to rethink everything that I thought I knew about the world. I have to rethink everything that I thought I knew about myself. I have to rethink everything that I thought I knew about God and about how everything works. Okay, now, now look at this, like where the story goes. Even after the Bible study, they don't see Jesus. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, hey man, stay with us, for it's nearing evening and the day is almost over. So he's like, yeah, okay. So he went in to stay with them. So now he's having dinner with them. They still can't see that it's Jesus until verse 30, and here it is. When he was at the table with them, 
he broke bread, gave, he, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And once again, he's using broken bread as a symbol of himself, the very thing that he had just done two nights before, and bang, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You ever had your heart burning within you? I have. So in this moment, Everything he was trying to show them, everything he'd been trying to show them the whole time, suddenly it clicked and they were able to set aside what they thought they knew and allow the tragedy of the cross to become the greatest victory they could ever imagine. Now, here's the thing. You and I, we can hear about Jesus' death and his resurrection and we can hear the story so many times that we become numb to it. We can hear it and at the same time, miss Jesus walking beside us the whole way. We, what we can do is we can look at the tragedies of our life, the losses, the defeats, and all we see is disappointment and hurt and loss and sadness. But what Jesus, who's, who's right beside us, whether we see him or not, what he wants us to see is that he's actually turned everything into victory. So, I mean, let's be honest for a second. You're, in some way, your life has not turned out or is not going the way that you had hoped. You were sure that things were going to happen a certain way, and they did not go how you thought. And now, Jesus is beside you, whispering to you a totally different story, a story of a different kind of redemption. But to experience hope, the hope and healing of Jesus to, to really be touched, we have to let go of so many preconceptions about life and Jesus. For these two men, their, their hope was that Israel would overthrow Rome. And Jesus came. And Jesus went. And Rome was still the oppressor. So from that viewpoint, Jesus did nothing for them. Have you ever had that kind of experience? If Jesus loves me, then Jesus will change my circumstances. So, so you follow Jesus and you follow Jesus and you follow Jesus and then in the end, Rome is still in power. You still aren't married. There's no pregnancy. The big promotion doesn't come. You get passed over. In fact, you lose your job. The one you loved and prayed for dies of cancer or ALS or whatever it was or Alzheimer's has its way, and the person that you knew is alive, but they're gone. Or the addiction of your friend or, or, or your child or your brother or your dad is, it still has them in its grip. Like, th this is your life, right? Jesus came, and Jesus went, and Rome is still in power. And when we feel that, it is, it's so easy to start to think, huh, I had hoped Jesus was the one. And then we wonder if all of our hopes were in vain. And yet that doesn't change the reality that Jesus is right there beside us and he wants to help us see redemption as something bigger, something way more beautiful. But to let that something 
wash over us, to let that soothing water just come in and fill us. We have to let go of the stuff that we already thought we knew. To let the water of hope and healing wash over our soul, we have to let Jesus show us who he really is. We have to let Jesus show us what he's ultimately about. And so what I just want to close by asking you to, to really think about your view of Jesus. Like when you think of Jesus and when you get an image in your mind and you think of what is he like? What is he about? What is he up to in your life? What is his heart toward you? How does he feel about you? What isn't he doing that you are sure that he should? What isn't he doing in your life? What isn't he doing in the world? Who is Jesus and what is he like? And then ask yourself this. Where did I get my ideas about Jesus? Like some of you, you went to Catholic school with some very un-Christ-like nuns. Some of you grew up with like rigid, legalistic, fundamentalist parents. Some of you grew up with hypocritical parents. They told you that they loved Jesus, but then they lived something else. Some of you grew up with parents that told you the whole Jesus thing is just a scam. Some of you have encountered judgmental, ignorant Christians. Some of you have been taught some strange things in other churches in your life. Never here. (laughs) Wait, what did I say last week? But whatever your picture of Jesus, where does it come from? Where did it come from? Because if we're ever going to encounter Jesus and experience him as living water, if we're going to let him fill us with hope and healing, we're going to have to let go of some preconceptions. We're going to have to just like let Jesus speak for himself. So I just want to say, what if some of your preloaded ideas are completely getting in the way for you? What if Jesus is walking right beside you and he's trying to help you see? Wouldn't that be something? So whether this is all brand new to you or you've like followed Jesus for years, if you come to him with your own preconceptions, you're going to miss him. The resurrection was unthinkable to even his closest followers. What might he be trying to show you? Because what I want to say is it could be more beautiful than anything you could possibly imagine. Father in heaven, I thank you that your approach to your enemies is not to slay them because I would have been slain years and years and years ago. But in Jesus, you are are calling out to whoever would come and experience the living water and be healed and made new whoever would come and get swept up into this, this flowing river of life and goodness and wholeness and just, just be enveloped by it and be made new and then become a part of that very river for the rest of the world. And Jesus, I, I just thank you that, that you continue to reveal yourself to me, that my understanding of 20 years ago about who you are is not where I'm at anymore. And yet I know I still have all kinds of preconceived ideas, and all of us in this room do, 
So Jesus, I pray that you would help us to, to come to you with humility and curiosity and to allow you to actually speak to us. Help us to set aside the stuff that isn't of you and replace it with the stuff that is. And would you heal us and make us whole and show us beauty that is more beautiful than anything we could ever imagine. Would you just invade our souls and then help us invade this world with goodness and self-sacrificial love. Amen.